Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the bold proclamation of your word. We thank you for the clear declaration of, of who Jesus is. And so, Father in heaven, I pray that as we study your word, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would show us the truth of who Jesus is. Lord, that you would expose in us our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, that we would turn from sin and turn toward Christ. Lord, for those who gather with us this morning who, who don't know how to answer that question, who don't know who Jesus is, Lord, give them the, the faith, the eyes of faith to see with clarity the, the teaching of your word, the truth of your gospel, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is our Savior and our Rescuer. So, Lord, we come praying in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Who do you say I am? It's the central question of this gospel. Who do you say I am? It's Jesus asking, what do you think of me? Do you recognize who I am? And it's not only the central question of this gospel. This really is the hinge on which the entire gospel turns. The the opening chapters, and we saw this clearly in chapters 1 through 4, but really the opening chapters 1 through 8 are leading us to this moment. Jesus has been revealed as the healer, as the teacher. And so he asks, who do you say I am? And it's from here that Jesus will, will very clearly explain to us today his purpose. But it, and he'll turn toward the cross to give his life in the place of sinners. But that question, who do you say I am, is not just central to Mark's gospel. It's central to your life. I mean, the reason Mark, Mark embeds this question right here in the center of the story is because this is the central question of your life. Who do you say I am? That's the question that Jesus asks you this morning. And we see how the crowds answer, the the people that follow Jesus. We saw this in verse 28. When the disciples, Jesus actually starts them with the easier question, right? Who do do people say I am? Because there's there's nothing on the line for them personally when they answer this. If if the people have gotten the, the answer wrong, well, that doesn't reflect poorly on the disciples. Jesus is the teacher. And so, so it's easier to answer that first question. Who do, who do other people say that I am? And basically the answer is, you're, you're one of the prophets. Some of them pick out John the Baptist, the, the prophet who had come just before Jesus. Now those that saw John the Baptist and Jesus standing next to each other probably didn't have this confusion. But, but it's happened in the gospel where people think Jesus and John the Baptist have the the same ministry because John comes preaching a baptism of repentance, which is the message Jesus brings. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Others think Jesus is Elijah, that Old Testament prophet from hundreds of years before who who was anticipated. Malachi spoke that that Elijah would would come to restore God's kingdom. And so so if, if the teaching of the kingdom is here, then it must be that Elijah has returned. 
But basically, you see that their answer is that, that Jesus, you're, you're among the prophets. You're, you're set apart by God as a, as a holy man, a spokesman for God. But then Jesus makes the question much more personal, right? He turns it in verse 29 on the disciples. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And it's here. For the first time, somebody is actually going to get it right. Up to this point in the gospel, the, the, only, the only creatures who acknowledge the truth about Jesus in, in its fullness are the demons. But you and I, we've known since, since the very beginning of the gospel, since the opening words, Mark 1, verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You and I know how to answer this question, right? If we're readers of Mark's gospel, we know how to answer this question. But up to this point, no one has gotten it right. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. That's the right answer. The Christ, the promised Messiah, the promised one of God who would come to redeem his people, to restore the kingdom. Finally, I mean, and this is, this is the first place in the gospel since verse 1 of the opening chapter that the description, the title, the Christ, the Messiah, is used. For the first time since the opening verse, we have somebody announcing the truth about Jesus. Peter, the spokesman for the prophets. Peter, with, with boldness, speaking clearly that Jesus, you are the Christ. And so there is this messianic expectation of the, the people of God, that God would send the Messiah, the anointed one, the Redeemer, to come and rescue his people. But, but who is this Messiah? I mean, we see that the people already misunderstand. They, they think Jesus is one of the prophets. And, and verse 30, when Jesus tells, them, tells his disciples, let's not talk about this right now. Like, don't announce this publicly yet, because here's the problem. People are going to completely misunderstand this claim. People are going to think, oh, Jesus is the conquering, victorious war hero, come to set us free from the oppression of the Romans. And so Jesus tells his disciples, for now, at this point, because people will misunderstand what, what that claim is that I am the Christ. Let's not talk about it yet. Don't announce this publicly. Because either the people will be, will be so excited that they will, they will in, in messianic fervor, sweep Jesus toward, toward Jerusalem before the time. Or the religious leaders, and we've seen this happening in the gospel, haven't we? The confrontation with, with those in power, they'll say, well, it's time to end it. It's time to remove Jesus. And so he, he tells them, don't, don't speak about it now. But we have the answer when Peter says, you are the Christ. And so what does it mean for us that Jesus, uh, who is Jesus? What does it mean for us that he's the Christ? Well, what I want to do in, in reading these next two sections to see how Mark pieces this gospel together, how he, how he shows us the theological truth of who Jesus is, I want us really to just use that, the outline that was given to us by Mark in chapter 1, verse 1. And so these, these next two stories show us these, these two truths. Who is the, the Messiah? He is the Christ, and he is the Son of God. So listen as I read the, the next section. Peter, in boldness, having rightly answered, you are the Christ. Now Peter's going to be knocked down. 
because Peter in boldness will then come to rebuke Jesus. Listen as I continue to read. This is Mark 8, verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some of of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So we have the, the answer. Who is Jesus? Mark 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is the Christ. But you see what, what Jesus is doing is Peter has made that clear declaration, but Jesus is now going to explain to him what does it mean to be the Messiah. It's not the expectation of a conquering hero because what does Jesus immediately say? Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must be rejected. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must be killed. He taught them that he, after three days, would rise again. This is what it means to be the Messiah. Not a political hero. Not a a conquering general. Not the the one who stands with the the armies of angels to come and, and take away all of the temporal problems of his people. But the Messiah is one who would suffer. It's the teaching we saw through the Christmas season as we looked at the the prophecies of Isaiah of the the servant who would suffer on behalf of his people. This is the expectation that the people should, should have had, but it's not the expectation that they do have. Right? Notice Peter. The same boldness that lets him be the first one to say, you are the Christ, gives him the boldness to correct Jesus, to rebuke Jesus. It's it's a pretty strong word. Now, he was nice enough to, to take Jesus aside, to not stand up and do it in front of everyone else, but, but Jesus makes sure everyone will learn the lesson, right? By turning to his disciples to correct Jesus. Because do you hear what Peter is doing? Jesus, you have this Messiah thing. You have it a little bit mixed up. So you, we, we just, we, we're getting it. You are the Messiah, and now you're talking about death. But that's not what the way the Messiah thing works. See, the Messiah is God's anointed one. The Messiah is the the king of Israel. The Messiah is the one who has all power and authority and dominion. And so, Jesus, I think I would appreciate it. You know, I think the teaching ministry you have would would go a little better if you would really emphasize those things. If you would emphasize power and victory, that's really, that's what the Messiah is about. And so Jesus, then, having been rebuked by Peter wrongly, turns and correctly rebukes Peter and says to him, get behind me, Satan. 
Now, I don't think that, that Peter was, was indwelled by, by demonic power, but, but to make the claim that the Messiah shouldn't suffer is to, is to basically be voicing the opinion of Satan. It's to align, Peter is aligning himself with, with the, the evil influences of Satan rather than the purposes of God and his kingdom in Jesus. And so Jesus rebukes Peter because Jesus' purpose is different than Peter thinks. Jesus came to suffer, to be rejected, to die. That's the purpose of the Messiah. And you see how to, to anyone standing and listening, I mean, we can, we can be hard on Peter here for his foolishness. Like, Peter, don't correct Jesus. Peter, come on. Seriously? But you know what? You and I would, we would have, we might not have been bold enough to do what Peter did, but we would have been thinking it. You know what, Jesus, this, you know, this isn't really as appealing to me as, you know, when we got this thing started. You know, I was really expecting this to work out a little better, not, not with death. You know, I'd, I'd really like Jesus for this, this ministry of yours to end in a different way. So you and I think the same way. When we, when we bring our own expectations and we apply them to Jesus, when we put Jesus in the category that the people were, were comfortable keeping him, him in, Jesus is a, is a good moral teacher. We're okay with that. As long as we get to pick and choose which of Jesus' moral teachings we want to keep. We're okay to keep Jesus just in the, the category of a moral teacher. Or, Jesus, if, as long as you agree with my built-in expectations, then I'm okay with, with you know, when, when your teaching aligns with me. I mean, think of one of the expectations you and I have. That God, you know, God just wants me to be happy. Right? Have you heard that? God just wants me to be happy. Have you, have you thought that maybe? I mean, let's, let's turn there to that passage. Well, we can't, can we? But don't we sometimes think that way? You know, at the end of a long day, you know, it's, it's been difficult, and you come home, and, and then those people that live in that house with you, they just nag you and bother you? Like, they still expect something of you? You know, God wants me to be happy. He doesn't want me to have to deal with you and your inconveniences. And Jesus understands this, doesn't he? I mean, the, the teaching, when he, when he calls the crowd to him, all right, disciples, you've, you've got this completely backwards about who the Messiah is. Let me make sure the crowds understand this too. His, his teaching in, in verses 34 and following are, are some of the hardest teaching in all of Scripture. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is not saying, I'm here to make you happy. Jesus is saying, lay down your life for the sake of the gospel. Your life is not about, about gathering possessions. I mean, Jesus asks the question, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And yet you and I are willing to trade our lives for, for temporary pleasures, temporary possessions. We, we live as if that, that would be true. If I gain enough stuff, then I, I've won. And Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, when he shows up, he destroys our expectations. And so ask yourself today, as you hear these words, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Has Christianity cost you anything? If you're a follower of Jesus, has it cost you anything? Now, I mean, in, in, to be clear, in the spiritual sense, no. You bring nothing to the equation. You are a sinner saved by God's grace. But having received God's grace, has Christianity cost you anything? Or has Jesus been kind enough to just let you do whatever you want? Live however you want. Gather whatever you want. Go wherever you want. Think however you want to think. See, if if that's your view of Christianity, then you don't have Christianity at all. You have Jesus as this buddy or this friend who is willing to come alongside you and agree with you when you need him to. But that's not who the Christ is. Jesus is the Christ, the one who came to suffer, the one who calls his followers to suffer, the one who came to go to the cross, the one who calls you to take up your cross. And so what has following Jesus cost you? Because if it hasn't cost you anything, then, then maybe you're not following. So Jesus rebukes Peter, showing us then what true discipleship looks like. Because discipleship looks like following the Christ. The Christ who must suffer. I mean, did you notice the necessity in the way that Mark phrases that? In capturing the teaching of Jesus, that Jesus had to suffer, that it was necessary that he suffer and die. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is, is, is just walking down this path without any choice of his own. No, he's, he's purposefully choosing this. But it means that in order to, to accomplish the purposes of the Messiah, in order to free his people from their sins, in order to rescue his people, the Messiah must die. And so he calls you to die to yourself, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him. And so who is Jesus? As Mark 1.1 shows us, he is the Christ. But he is also the Son of God. And so so notice then, as as we continue, how these stories are, are connected. Where we might object, Jesus, this suffering servant, Jesus, this dying Messiah, I don't think that's the way the story should end. Well, the the next event in Jesus' life, in the life of his disciples, and you'll notice even the theme here of of Peter's boldness. In the, the opening story, he's the one who proclaims Jesus to be the Christ. In the next, he's the one who is willing to rebuke Jesus, and now he will be the one who will speak on the mountain of transfiguration. Listen as I continue to read Luke chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and and one for Elijah. He He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen 
until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done everything they wished. They've done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. All right, n- notice in, in verse 2 that temporal marker. The, it tells us how much time has passed. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Now, that might, mean, that might initially strike you that there's a big separation between these two events, right? Like, wh- why am I pushing them together? Or why does Mark push these two events together? Jesus rebuking Peter and, the, and teaching the crowds with this event that happens six days later. Well, and so we, so we might think it's actually separating them, but, but no, it's, it's, it's unusual in Mark's gospel that he actually tells us how much time something took. Usually the way Mark's gospel happens is, and immediately this happened, and immediately they went here. Normally, he doesn't give us any real time signature. He just moves them along. And so actually, the time signature, while, while giving us a separation of six days, is actually connecting these two stories. It's making sure we don't miss the truth, that, that the, the truth about the suffering Messiah, the suffering Christ, is also the truth about the glorified Son of God. Those two truths have to be connected together. And actually, in the... In that detail, after six days, going up to a mountain and hearing the voice of God might, might also have reminded the disciples about Moses. It's a detail that we catch in the, in the gospel of, or in, back, in, uh, uh, back in the book of Deuteronomy. But, but the connection here is that the, the Messiah, who is the one who will suffer and die, is the Son of God, the glorified Son of God. And so, so what happens? Jesus takes these, these three disciples. There is, he has the, the 12 disciples who follow him. He has crowds that follow him. But then, then among the 12, there are three. Three that are, are witnesses to special events. They, they've seen Jesus perform miracles in, in private, and now they're, they're witnesses to this miraculous event where they go up onto a high mountain, we're told. They're all alone, and Jesus is transfigured before them. He's transformed. His, his form changes so that, that they visibly, they notice the difference. Notice the way, the way Mark describes the, the change. His clothes are whiter than any white I've ever seen. Nobody in this world can make them that white. Do you see what he's saying? This is, there is no natural explanation for this. Something supernatural was taking place here. Jesus was transformed right before us. His glory shone out. He, he glowed a dazzling white, a perfect holiness right there before us. And then what takes place? They see, standing with Jesus, Elijah and Moses. I don't know if they had name tags or they introduced themselves or if they just immediately recognized, this is Elijah. This is Moses. These are the, the two great prophets of the Old Testament. The, those that, that brought the, the old covenant, the, the, the promise of God, that God, through the redemption that comes through shed blood, would forgive his people, that he would be with them. And they stand and they talk with Jesus. And once again, Peter, in his boldness, is, is willing to speak up and kind of interrupt this, this heavenly scene and, and offer, let me, you know, 
you know, there, you know, there are three of you, and there are, you know, like, there are three of us, and so, hey, it's a good thing we're here. We could build you guys some shelters. I mean, maybe we should do something, but, but even Mark, I mean, Mark is, is being kind now to Peter here, and, it, and it's likely that the way Mark's gospel is, is given to us is really through the, the lens of Peter's experience. I mean, it, he tells us in verse 6, now, at this point, Peter, he didn't even know what to say. Now, he still says something, because that's Peter. Even if you don't know what to say, even if you're frightened out of your mind, he just speaks up. But it's helpful to us because it lets us see who Jesus is through the lens of someone trying to make sense of it. And so he, he offers, well, you know, we'll, we'll put up some shelters here so that you, you guys will be comfortable. You don't have to stand here in the hot sun. We'll, we'll give you some shade. But Peter's not understanding what's taking place. He's looking at, at the, the immediacy of the events when he's getting a glimpse of Jesus' resurrected glory, a glimpse of, of Jesus' heavenly glory. And so then, a, a, a cloud envelops them. You know, the, the Old Testament cloud leading the people of God, the presence of God surrounding them here on the mountain with the, the Old Covenant uh, prophets standing with Jesus. And then the voice from heaven speaks. They hear the voice of God. This is my son, whom I love. But you see, we're, we're getting, Mark is showing us who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These are the same words that God spoke that the people heard at the baptism of Jesus. This is my Son. There it was spoken to Jesus, you are my Son. Here it's now announced to the disciples, this is my Son, whom I love. Jesus is the beloved, eternal, perfect Son of God shining in all of the brilliance of heaven before them. See, the disciples were caught up in the suffering, in the pain, in the sorrow, in the rejection of the story of Jesus. And what Jesus is showing them, I mean, he, in the last, in the last story with Peter, he called Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. But what does he do? He takes Peter by the hand and leads him up the mountainside and says, Peter, the suffering is necessary to get to glory. I mean, you see how, how the contrast is set for us in these stories. The contrast between Peter's bold proclamation of who Jesus is, you are the Christ, and Peter's foolish rebuke of Jesus. The contrast between the suffering of the servant, the death of the Messiah, and the glory of the Son of God. But do you hear then? This is the answer to that question. Who is Jesus? This is the way we should answer the question. Who do you say I am? Jesus, you are the Christ. Jesus, you are the one who came to suffer in my place. It was necessary. My sin made your death necessary. Do You see, that's the response that's demanded. For us to say, Jesus, you are the Son of God, the one with all the glory of heaven. That even as we try and describe it, no one in the world could, could, could bleach clothing as pure as, as the clothing that you will wear, that belongs to you, that is yours, because you are the eternal Son of God, the one with all power and authority. Do you see here at the hinge of Mark's gospel how he's showing us the, the, the crux of the story? That Jesus is the one who came to die, and Jesus is the one who will be glorified. And so his question still hangs. But what about you? But what about you? 
Who do you say I am? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the bold and clear teaching of your gospel. Lord, for those of us that, that doubt this gospel truth, that wonder if, if this is the, the full story, Lord, give us the faith to believe, to understand that, that what we read here are the words of Jesus, that what we have here are your own words spoken to us from heaven, that you are the God who has entered into our story to tell us the truth, the truth about who we are, the truth about what you have done for us. So, Lord, I pray today for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that we would be willing to let let discipleship cost something, that we'd consider the ways in which we have have tried to tame or keep Jesus at a distance. Lord, help us to, to obey the hard commands that Christ gives to us. Help us to acknowledge our own selfishness and sinfulness. Lord, allow us the, the strength to today deny ourselves, to today take up our cross and follow after Jesus. Lord, for those who don't know Jesus, who have not heard him as the Messiah, who have not understood him to be your son, the one who is glorified. Lord, that today, hearing your gospel, their lives, their hearts would be transformed. Father in heaven, we come in the name of Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Son of God. Amen.